Amen. Well, thanks for bearing with those. And uh, y'all commit to praying for everybody this week and uh, not just something we do on Sunday, but something you'll commit to during the week. And uh, God will bless you for that. And here's our prayers. So uh, thank you for that. One of uh Continue with lesson three today. We're in Second Peter. We haven't gotten very far, but I think we've gotten a lot accomplished. But I uh, uh, hope you have benefited from it. We're going to be in Second uh, Peter, and again, I'm going to be reading from the first chapter. We'll probably begin about verse four. Where we started last week. Uh, remember, much was those of you who were here, and it was a very small crowd. I might add. <laughs> Starting to get uh, get starting to get paranoid, but uh, no, I may get fired, and my boss is here with us, so y'all make sure you attend. Co-labor, co-labor, but uh, no, but uh, just wanted to encourage. Remember what I said last week that there were three or thousand or more promises in Scripture, and uh, it behooves us to know what these promises are because these promises are going to be the conduit through which Christ grows us into his image and we become faithful as we look to him. These promises are there for us and they are there to encourage us, to encourage us. And we looked at this word epikonosis. Remember last week there's two words in the Greek that are used in this text. The first word, the general term is kenosis, which is knowledge, the Greek word for knowledge. And we really broke down what epikinosis meant, meant last week. And the prefix epi is what separates it. You remember the, uh, the general word is just knowledge. It's learning facts and applying facts. Uh, but this epi is, gives it a personal, intimate knowledge. It's, it separates from worldly knowledge and godly knowledge. It's a knowledge that uh, it is it is from God, and it gives us an intimacy. It gives us a personal relationship. It is the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. And we talked about this epikinosis last week. And one of the ways we grow in intimacy with Christ is through promises. And I wrote this down. When you know the promises, they become precious to you. And the preciousness becomes the intimacy, and it becomes the personal relationship with our Father that motivates us uh, to godly living. And, uh, and it is through this process, then, that we look at today as we start today. We looked last week uh, that, of course, the enabler of our Christian character is the divine power. As I prayed, the divine power is, is the power that originates in God, in Christ, and it is that power that enables us uh, to become more and more Christ-like. And we talked about the divine power has been given. All the divine power that we need has been given to us that pertains, and we talk, broke all these words down, that pertain to life. And we talked about Zoa life, and this is a spiritual life. Then we talked about godliness, and we talked about the order is critical. you got to have the life first before you can be godly. There is no godliness without the implantation of life that comes from God in our hearts. So we talked about that in great detail. So we did look at the nature of the empowerment. We looked at the means of it and through knowledge, and we looked at through the precious promises, and we spent most of our time talking about the precious promises that were ours in Christ. We read several, then we talked about how these promises uh, 
develop us in this process of sanctification as we become more and more Christ-like. Now we're in verse 4. I'll start in verse 4, and then I'm going to be, this is going to be just a continuation from last week. This is going to be the the results of the enablement and a result of the empowerment. It's knowledge, of course. It's been given to us, the precious promises. These are the results, and then that's going to lead us to verses 5 through 7. Let me start Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 4, uh, talking about these precious promises, by which has been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these great and precious promises we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But for also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness agape love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And then we have the first immoral imperative, foundational imperative in this book. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble, and an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we look at this today, we're going to look at the results of this development of Christian character, and we see two results from the text in verse 4. The first thing we see is that through the empowerment and through the enablement of God and His Spirit within us, we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, as I normally do, I want to first of all tell you what this word means. We become partakers of the divine natures. Remember that Peter in this book is writing to his people, to these dispersion. These have been suffering persecution at the hands of the Romans. And he is writing to them because they are on the front end of Gnosticism. We talked about Gnosticism. It is knowledge, but this knowledge was skewed knowledge. It was a secular, worldly knowledge. It was a knowledge. It was a blend of Eastern mysticism. It was a blend of the occult. It, it had some scripture in it, but it was a twisted scripture. And Gnosticism reared its ugly head toward the uh, 60s, 50s, and the 60s, and the 70s, ADs. It really came to fruition in the second and third Christ, uh, era. But uh, they, are beg- they are starting to see it. And this... Remember we said Gnosticism took knowledge and they said that as you increase in knowledge, you're going to, you're going to spark the divinity within you. And, uh, as Keith and I talked about this, as, as I know Dan and Linda have been involved in this uh, critical race theory and Keith's teaching, this is all uh, just a subtle blend of what Gnosticism is. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no new religion. There's no new 
uh, you know, it's all old, it's all hodgepodge, it's all Babylonian influence, and it's and what Gnosticism says that the more knowledge you accumulate, you remember the Bereans were big on knowledge, and as Paul spoke to them on uh, on the Acropolis in Mars Hill, uh, he said, I know y'all have knowledge and you speak to a God you don't know, and, and so this is just a blending of knowledge, and they think this knowledge creates a divine spark within you, and it's a uh, it's just a it's it's a it's a hodgepodge. It, it it applies in New Ageism today. It applies in Scientology today. It applies in Mormonism today. It applies in in the Muslim faith. It's a blend that there are some truths, uh, but it is it is it is uh, it's all corrupted by uh, demonic influence and false teaching. And what Peter was addressing in his day was the beginning of this. And so the Gnostics taught that, hey, if you have a specific bit of knowledge, esoteric knowledge, which is a specialized knowledge, then you are going to spark the divine within you. And they taught that you could become little gods. And and uh, Melanie has a friend whom she went to high school, school all the way up, who used to be a, a uh, solid Christian citizen, and now she's involved in a mystic Christianity where you can become a little god. And it's uh, I'll let her next uh, when we do uh, the false prophets and their heresy. I'll let her read some excerpts from the web page, and it's scary, and it teaches that you can become a little god, and and uh, it, it it bastardizes, if you let me use that word, co-heirs with Christ, and it and it. And it confuses the definition of what that is and what it isn't. And so this is all just going to be a, a blending of, of, of this, of this fake theology, this Gnosticism. So what this doesn't mean, long story short, when, when it says that we become a partaker of the divine nature, we are not saying that we're going to become inherent possessors of divine nature. We're, that's a pagan implication. We're not saying that this is pantheism where, where we absorb our individual personality is absorbed into the divine essence. That's not what that means. It's not that we uh, cease being human and become little gods. That's not what this means, that we become divine partakers. But what it does mean is several things, and if you're writing these things down, when Peter says we become partakers of divine nature because of the enablement and the empowerment of, of Christ in our lives, he is saying that we share now in the moral nature of God. We 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 now have the mind of Christ. Uh, we are now enabled spiritual communion with God, okay? We have new attitudes. We have new attitude disposition. We have a new will. We have a new nature. Uh, as Sally always says, we're not putting lipstick on a pig, but we have a new natures. We have a new desires, new abilities, and we're new. And Scripture says we put off the old and put on the new. Scripture says we're new creations in Christ, and the old is passing away. It's a process. And each one of us should, should see the old man passing away day by day, and, er, and we should be seeing the new, everything starting to become new. It's, it's newer, and it's more real and relevant, and it's life-changing and transforming us. So when it, <coughs> excuse me. So when we become partakers of divine nature, that's what's going on. 
We know we are now sharing in God's moral nature. We have we are spiritual communion with God. Uh, it, we now can say that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember Colossians 1:27. Uh, this new life is after the image of Him who created us, and that's Colossians 3:10. So this partakers of the divine nature is the newness in Christ. It enables a communion, in the, and then we now have a, a fellowship with him. And, and we remember what it says in 1 John. Look at 1 John 1, 3. Uh, as John was addressing his little children, he was addressing his church, uh, probably Ephesus. Uh, but, uh, but he says in, in 1 John 1, 3 that we have been and heard, and we declare to you that we may have a Fellowship with you and our fellowship is with a father and with his son, Jesus Christ. That's koinonia. We have a commonness now that we're in Christ. We're in union with Christ. We've been buried with Christ and we've died to the old man and we are alive to the new man. So that's what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Uh, and, and it demands the phrasing of it and the tense of it that we're partakers implies continuing communion and obedience. Uh, he is the instigator of it. He's the author of the faith. He's the originator of it. He's the giver of it. But we have a obligation to cooperate in that grace, not for the salvation, but for the growth in the salvation. So that's what it means. The results of this enablement is that we now can become partakers of the divine nature. Let me give you some verses to look at. Uh, some verses, uh, uh, look at first, uh, at, at John. Remember we did John, it's been, it's probably been a year since we did John chapter one, but a, a great a prologue to the rest of the book. But we see in John chapter one, if you remember those of you, who were with us, and I think it's everybody in this room and on Zoom. Uh, chapter 1, John, verse 12 and 13, as we look at uh, being a partakers of the divine nature. Uh, but as many as received him, to them he gave, that's the grace, the right, the authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we see his enablement uh, and his, uh, his grace in our hearts that we are now partakers and we are his children. Uh, that's a verse that's uh, important for us to see. Everybody knows Galatians 2.20. Uh, if you don't know that verse, I would uh, counsel you to remember the verse. Uh, Galatians 2.20. What does Paul say? Uh, to emphasize this being a partaker of the divine nature. He says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I live. But Christ who lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. I don't set aside God's grace. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nada, for nothing, in vain. So we see that we become partakers of the divine nature, being crucified with Christ. And then the, the great verse in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 23 through 24, uh, we're going to see that uh, again in spades as we look at this, 4, 23, and 24. Uh, start at 22. Put off the concerning the old conduct, the old man which grows corrupt 
according to the deceitful lust, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you may put on the new man, which was <coughs> created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, other verses that it will apply would be Hebrews 3:14 and 12:10, and then our own verse in First Peter chapter 1 verse 23. As we looked at that in great detail, uh, it tells us, uh, verse 23, 1 Peter, we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. The means is through the word of God, and that word lives and abides forever. So we looked at that. So we see being a partaker of the divine nature, what it is and what it isn't. And then the, uh, the, the negative complement to uh, becoming a partaker of the divine nature is that we do what? We escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. So not only is there a positive component to the result of this, that we are partakers of the divine nature, but it has to be, there has to be an opposite to that new reality. And the new reality is that we escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. A very interesting uh, understanding of what this word means, escape. Uh, it means to, in it, in it, in it, the word escape, as we notice in, uh, uh, if you look back, uh, which is, uh, through these we, through these we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, that word is through these is the word, and it's a great word, it's genethesis. G-E-N-E-S-T-H-E, a Greek word, and you recognize that gen prefix, which is a beginning. This teaches us, this is, this is the, Actual realization of who we are in Christ. It's the beginning of who we was. We become partakers. The genetics, if that's pronounced right, and I'm quite sure it isn't, but it's the but it's the uh, actual realization. It this process has begun in us, and we realize it today. It's like abundant life. It's meant for us to live today. The eternal life is not something future glory, but it's something we do today. So we're partakers today. It began in us at regeneration and it's began in us and it is it is going to be simultaneously with the beginning of something new is the ending of the old and so we see that word escape is occurs simultaneously with the renewal and then the escape starts and it the escape uh, it summarizes our past life so if you're writing this down, do you, when we escape the world through lust, that word escape means we, it, 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 this is our past life. And it's going to recognize that we are fully delivered from it. When it says we escape the world through lust, the word literally means our past life is no more and we have been fully delivered from it. Uh, it is a flight from danger. Uh, it, it, but it implies effort on the growth aspect as we continue to escape, but the, but the escape itself is a work of God. So the work of God is the escape, but then we have a role in continuing to escape as we put off and put on. 
as we don't yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, as we, as we uh, guard our hearts and our minds, uh, it's the wellspring of life. So we have a role in this as we transform our minds, as we look at the word and the word changes us. So this, this results of this is that we are escaping, we have escaped, and we are escaping. The are escaping is our responsibility as we trust Christ, as he changes us through his word. And so what does it say that we are escaping the corruption? This word is a very disgusting word, and I'll just let you think about maggots and decomposition. The corruption, we are escaping corruption, friends. This world is corrupt. It is a decaying organism. The word is P-Y-T-H-O-R-A-S, pathoras, moral corruption. It's operative in all of human nature, and it's the opposite of the divine nature. So uh, when we're escaping the corruption, we are actually doing the very opposite of what we did in, in point A when we are the divine nature, we're partakers of it, but we're escaping the corruption, the decaying world system, the decaying of our own bodies, uh, the, the, the decay and the corruption is prevalent in all unredeemed life. And human effort cannot escape from it. You know, people that try to turn over new leaves and they try to do this and they try to do that and they, and they do various means uh, to escape uh, their perceived corruption. It is not done by human effort. It's a work of God. And so uh, it is pervasive. And matter of fact, the human body is irredeemable. It is not redeemed at salvation. Our, our souls are redeemed and they are bought, but our bodies are not redeemed. And they will not be redeemed until we are glorified, right? That's why flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of heaven because it's, there's, our sin is so pervasive in our DNA and it's corrupting and it, and God can't be in the presence of it. And so we have to be changed and we have to be made new with a new, new, new body. And so, uh, our, Flesh is incorruptible. The flesh is not subject to God's law, and it can't be. And we can't please God in our flesh because it's morally corrupt and it's wicked through and through. So, uh, so that's what this means. This this flight from corruption, this escaping corruption. The work itself is God, but it is our it is our prerogative and our. Uh, part of obedience that we escape from it. And the lust is the source of the corruption, and that's the human heart. Uh, what defiles a man, it's what comes from within the heart, and that's what defiles the man. And what we speak and what we say is a consequence of what's in our heart. So as we look at these beautiful results of the enabler and the empowerment of the d divine life within us, the Zoa life, it must be that we are uh, partakers of the divine nature. We cannot, like James said, have faith without works. It's dead. And there has to be a natural progression in our lives. And you can't just say, oh, I know who God is, but you have to, your life has to give evidence that you do by a, a, uh, 
epikenosis of him, and that epikenosis of him is going to rot change in your heart. And so we see that. So that's how he sort of starts this. And then this is going to lead to the seven qualities of spiritual growth. And I've got these on the board. Uh, just a couple of things before we get started. Uh, verse 5, for this very reason, uh, we see this phrasing, uh, giving all diligence. That word diligence, one of the, before we get started on the seven qualities, uh, it, first of all, it requires diligence. Uh, what is diligence? Persistence, work, effort. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Everybody knows this verse. Uh, I'll let you, uh, let me uh, read this verse and give you some of the fancy Greek words uh, that really bring it to life. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, one of Gene's favorite verses, uh, as he's quoted this to me many times. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is constantly working. His working gives us the energy, okay? And the energy is a constant spiritual energy and is essential, essential in us, the beloved, that we work out the salvation. So that's part of what diligence is. I love what uh, Ebert said. He says, Diligence is not an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. So we're not zapped to complete sanctification, but God in his grace and in his divine knowledge knows our best entrance is that we grow in grace and we cooperate in his grace and we must be diligent. Uh, it is a daily exercise uh, so it's diligence. It requires a daily exercise. Uh, we frustrate God's grace. We don't thwart it, but we frustrate God's grace when we don't participate actively in daily Bible study and prayer. Uh, that's just part of this process. Uh, it is also zealousy as opposed to slothfulness. I believe one of the things that God hates the most in his people is slothfulness. He hates slothfulness. He hates because slothfulness, and this is me talking about my life, slothfulness, when you're lazy spiritually, you become apathetic and you become lukewarm. That's what apathy and lukewarmness leads to. And you know what Scripture says about lukewarmness. You don't know that you're wretched and you're blind and you're miserable and you're naked, as it tells us in the Laodicean church. So God hates slothfulness in Christian walk, and he desires us to be zealous. Why wouldn't we be for the great grace? And he's given us, so we must be zealous and eager and not slothful or sluggish. But what we do is we become self-indulgent. We become unthankful. We become discontented in our lives, and we become apathetic. So Scripture teaches us that we need to be diligent, daily exercise these graces, not half-heartedly. And it says, uh, what does your version say? My New King James says, 
This giving all diligent add. What does your uh, Bible say the word for add is in your translation? Does it say supply? Uh, supply. The pardon me. Supplement. The word add, supply, supplement means to bring alongside. So Peter is saying, for this very reason, we need to be diligent. We need to give our very best, not secondhand effort, not slothfulness. And we need to supplement. That is our role in this process. That means to contribute uh, what God demands. It means to bring alongside. And, and I have on the board, human effort is subordinate to what God has already done. So we are not working for our salvation, but we are working because we are saved and we are giving evidence that we are saved by our zealously coming alongside the grace given to us as we mature in faith. So this word add means we supply or supplement. It is our effort to what God has already done. Uh, the supply has been lavishly given. We saw that in, in Second Peter, that he has given us all necessary spiritual life, okay? So we can't have excuses. Well, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I, and, uh, I think besides slothfulness, God hates our excuses. And if you're like me, you've heard it a million times from your brothers and your sisters, and you've been guilty of it, Right? excuses. I think God hates excuses. So we have no excuse. He has given us the the unlimited resources necessary for life and godliness, and we must contribute to what God has given us. The supply has been given. So we look at this. Now, one other thing before we a lot of uh, before we get into today, but uh, I think we need to see uh, that it doesn't say that we need to supplement or we need to bring alongside faith. Faith is a gift from God. We have to believe, yes, that is a imperative for us as believers, but the ability to believe is a gift from God. Faith is not told, we don't have to add Faith is, is a given. Peter is writing to elect people, saved people. He's writing to like-minded people. He's writing to his brothers. He's writing to those who have already inherited grace in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this for the last uh, couple of months. So when Peter is talking, he is implying and he is understanding that faith is the seedbed already given to these readers and to us in this room. Faith has already been given. It's a gift. And it is the seedbed, of course, through which these other qualities are going to grow. Okay? We don't supply the faith. We do have to believe, don't get me wrong, but this ability to believe is a gift. Not all men have the life-giving faith, Christ said. Not all men have faith. It's a fruit of the Spirit that happens at regeneration. But, but uh, So Peter is not saying we bring faith to the table. It is assumed that the readers have faith. 
because who they are in Christ. But so this seedbed from which Christianity grows. And so as we look at these seven, and it's no accident that there's seven. We know seven is a number of completion. It's going to be a summation of what the Christian life is in these seven characteristics. But uh, but each quality of I have on the board here, those of you who are Zooming can't see it, each quality is inherent in its predecessor. So what we're saying is faith has to be the seedbed, and then faith, uh, the beginning after faith is virtue, and then all the connections, they're going to be necessary uh, to move on to the next one. Each quality is inherent in its predecessor, and in turn is, is, turn is supplemental supplemented and perfected by new quality. So as we as we go from faith, which is a seedbed to virtue, and we go to virtue, uh, we go to knowledge, each one is necessary building component of the other. And if you don't have a uh, have virtue, you're going to have a difficult time with knowledge. And if you don't have knowledge and virtue, uh, it's going to be impossible for you to have a quality of self-control. So that's sort of where we're going to go with this. Uh, anybody have any questions about this? As we now we're going to look at these uh, seven qualities in five and seven, five through seven. Any questions, comments? Virtue. What is virtue? So we've got seed bed of faith, and so now we're going to have to supplement the God-given faith, and we're going to have to add to, made possible in Christ, add to that virtue. What is virtue? Anybody know what virtue is? Moral excellence. Moral excellence. Excellent, excellent uh, definition from Chris. Uh, virtue is moral excellence. Uh, in this text... Remember, Peter is writing to a people that are persecuted and in tribulation and, and in danger of being martyred for the faith. And he's writing to a people who are being bombarded by false prophets and teachers. Satan wanted to stop the church, and he was specifically active in the new churches. And his desire was to... Uh, confuse them and to get them off the true faith. So he was very active. And so this word virtue, as Chris says, is a moral excellence, but it's specifically, uh, if you want to write this down, it's moral courage or energy uh, in the exercise of faith. So he's encouraging these believers to have moral excellence, yes, but he's really saying have a moral courage and an energy amidst this false teaching that you're in. And that would apply to us. Uh, uh, Melanie brought up a, uh, a quote from Spurgeon, who's my favorite preacher, uh, lived over a hundred and some odd years ago. And uh, he said this a hundred and something years ago. And, and I think Melanie said, what well, he must be rolling over in his grave. And this verse from uh, today applies to the false teaching and the BLM movement and all these things that we're going through today. Uh, he said, and can you imagine, this is 118 something, so they're talking 150 years ago. He said, the present age in which he lives in the 1800s is so flippant that if a man lo loves his savior, he's a fanatic. And if he hates the power of evil, he's a bigot. 
Now, what would he say today? <clears throat> so if you want to write that down, the present age is so flippant that if a man loves his Savior, he's a fanatic. And if he hates the power of evil, he's a bigot. So congratulations, you fellow bigots. As we love God and we hate the power of evil, we are wonderfully, we are persecuted for Christ. How about that? And we're rejoicing that we're bigots because we hate what he hates and he hates evil. uh, Spurgeon said the present age is so flippant that if a man loves his savior, he's a fanatic. And if he loves, hates the power of evil, he's a bigot. So congratulations, you're like a forerunner spurge of a hundred something years ago. So uh, virtue says we got to have moral courage and energy that when we're called bigots, because we hate what God hates and we love our Savior, we're fanatics, okay? And somehow we've got to be squashed. That's what the world is telling us today. No matter what you believe about the BLM, whether you think it's really black lives or whatever you think about it, you must understand that it's an effort to squash Christ and his people through family suppression, through the personification of evil, through the elimination of Christ in the churches. And it is a desire to say no to God. It's what it is. It's of the devil. Okay, so congratulations, bigots, and whatever else we are, as Spurgeon would say, that's what virtue is, to have moral courage and energy and to take vigorous action, this diligence. So that's part of it. So I just want to encourage you to be virtuous from a seedbed of faith. And God will give you that a desire and ability. Okay, so virtue. Add to your virtue, supplant, add to your virtue, your role, knowledge. Now, this knowledge is back to the kenosis knowledge, the general knowledge. It's practical knowledge that grows and enables us to discern between right and wrong. So we need to educate ourselves. And one thing I'm glad Keith did that. We need to be educated to what's going on on this world and in this planet. We have long had our heads in the sands as believers. Uh, We're ostriches, see no evil, hear no evil. And uh, we need to wake up. Uh, Even a, uh, I think his name is Kirk Cameron. He's a Christian guy uh, in Hollywood. He said this is a, Christians have been asleep too long and we need to wake up. And so for that, we need we need to be thankful. And one of the things that wakes us up is to have a practical knowledge of what's going on, what our enemy's trying to do. And so to discern between right and wrong. So this is going to be found in many, many texts. I'll just look at some that we've looked at uh, in previous studies. Uh, John 7, 17. So we're adding to this moral courage, uh, practical knowledge. Uh, look at 717. Jesus talking to his, uh, uh, to his, uh, fellow Jews. He says, verse 16, Jesus answered and said, my teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, 
That's the Father's will. He shall know concerning the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no right unrighteousness is found in him. Other texts would be uh, John 15, 15, but we have a responsibility to understand practically the knowledge, what's going on, in our world, and that helps us become uh, the developed Christ character. Uh, I like this quote. It says, the cure for false knowledge is not less knowledge, but it is a knowledge characterized by moral insight. And so we have moral courage, we have moral excellence, and we develop knowledge with that, and that knowledge grows our moral insight, and it distinguishes from how we used to be and the way we are now, okay? It distinguishes this character added to virtue, which is the seedbed of faith, is going to distinguish between our old lives and our new lives. So knowledge is a vital component. What's the next word we have here? Self-control. This is a fruit of the Spirit, and this is something that is very slow that God is producing in me personally. Self-control. Self-control, if you're writing these things down, inner power, that means it comes from God's Spirit to control one's own desires and cravings. It is a fruit resulting from true knowledge. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As we saturate our minds with the knowledge which comes from the scripture, that knowledge is going to be incorporated and born by the spirit, and that is going to control our desires and cravings, okay? And uh, and uh, I like what this commentator said. He said, virtue Guided by knowledge, disciplines desire and makes desire the servant instead of the master. How you like that? Virtue guided by knowledge, disciplines desire and makes desire the servant instead of the master. So as the Holy Spirit produces this fruit of self-control in us, based upon knowledge and virtue, of course, seedbed of faith, our, 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 our inner man is disciplined, and our inner man is not our master, but it is our servant. So we control emotions and how we react to things, that are going on. That's part of self-control. My natural reaction is to do very many unchristian things in thought and deed to these folks, right? That's my natural human reaction. And if you want to ask what that is, you can ask my wife. And it's not pleasant, but I this is natural within me. But as God is working in me, that natural reaction is becoming not my master, but is my servant. And I can use emotion righteously, and I can understand men and understand that the root cause of all this is is the sinful heart and Satan in the world system. So I don't have to freak out and fret and become enraged, morally indignant. Okay, that's really a... (laughs) 
That's a good phrase. I like that. Morally indignant, but uh, we really know what that is. That's that's my own heart showing. Okay. So self-control is a function of knowledge and virtue, seedbed of faith. Next one is patience. If self-control isn't number one, a number one, uh, patience has got to be one B. And uh, if you deny this within yourself, uh, I just say liar, liar. <laughs> <laughs> I do that in love because. I don't know of anybody. I know of people that are more self-controlled and more patient than me, but I don't know anyone who is Christ-like in their self-control and patience. And if you are honest with yourself, that is a process within each one of us. Thank goodness I'm not how I used to be, but it's not where I need to be yet. Okay? So this patience is, again, an inner power, work of the Spirit, that's developed by self-control. So it's a necessary component to be self-controlled before patience can come into fruition. And patience is bearing up under a heavy load. So I have to be self-controlled for this ability to bear up under a heavy load. And this is a, uh, this is a, has a component of endurance to it. It's it's not that I can today control myself by what's going on on this planet and and in politics, uh, but it is this is a this patience is endurance that's developed through self control. I love this definition. It's a focus on what is beyond current pressures. We get focused on, oh my gosh, what's going to happen on November, whatever day it is. We get, we get focused on the now and the present. That's who we are as human beings. And we react to that emotionally, wrongly, just like Job did, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes did. All of these things, this is how we typically react. Uh, I react like David. You remember when he was in trouble? I wish I had wings so I could fly away. And then he said, why don't you just destroy my enemy? You have those two reactions, huh? No, I know you don't, but I do. So the, the patience is focusing on what is beyond the current pressures. And it's, it's Hebrews 12.10. Remember Jesus, uh, Hebrews 12.10. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, is it 12.10? I like 12.2 better. I don't know why I wrote 12.10 down. Look at 12.2 of Hebrews. Got to read 1.2. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The apostles, the scripture, the disciples, our current brothers and sisters in Christ, those who've gone before us in the faith, the Spurgeons that encourage us. Let us lay aside every weight. This is what patience is and the sin that easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. That's that patience, the race that is set before us. We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despite the shame, and has sat down. So we, as in, in patience, we focus on the, uh, on the results, right? We, we focus on the end game. We see the finish line. 
And that is going to buoy us on through our current pressures. Does that make sense? Self-control. And that helps us withstand. And, uh, and especially in this context, Peter was calling his readers to endure with patience and self-control the false teachers and the false prophets. And we're to do that too. Because we know their end. We know that they one day they will be judged and that righteousness is going to reign on the earth. And we know their end is not good, but we know our end is. We're, this is our hell that we're going to go through on earth. And it is very temporary. And for most of it, it is, it is closer to the end than the beginning, right? And that includes me, thank the Lord. But this is, this is the only, this is our hell on earth. But they have not recognized theirs yet. Okay. So we need to keep that in perspective. So patience is very important. Godliness. Uh, that's something we all perceive. This is, has to be foundationed in faith. Uh, the Zoa life has been given to life and godliness. We talked about godliness and godliness is an attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in everything you do. So I seek to please God in my reactions and my emotions to what's going on on this planet. And uh, my desire to please him is going to be a fruit of the self-control and of the patience and the knowledge and the virtue when the seedbed of faith. See how that all works? It's all so I can't be godly unless God is working patience in me, unless he's working self-control in me, unless he's working knowledge in me, unless he's working virtue in me. And of course, that has to be the seedbed of faith, which is him from him too. So godliness, it desires a right relationship between God and man. So a godly person not only does not hate his enemy, but he prays for his enemy. And he seeks the change in his enemy. He seeks for his enemy to see that he is a duped person by Satan. And he is a pawn in Satan's work. And we see that as God's people. And, and that's why we pray for them. And that is very difficult. I don't want to be a pious, full of, full of religious piety that we need to pray for our enemies. We do. But that is something that is process, right, Ron? Process. Godliness. Uh, it brings the sanctifying power of God into all experiences of life. It keeps a believer from becoming, I love this, godliness. If you don't write anything down, it keeps the believer from becoming hard and defiant toward his opponents. Godliness keeps me, keeps us from becoming hard and defiant against our opponents. Okay? That's what it does. The next one, we know these things, brotherly kindness, phileo love. That's a word from Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's a warm affection between spiritual relatives. It's the way we feel about each other in this class, on this Zoom meeting, in our congregation with all brothers and sisters. And brotherly kindness is going to manifest itself in acts of kindness. 
we need to demonstrate our love toward each other by showing acts of kindness, uh, bearing one another's burdens, forgiving one another, all part of this process of brotherly kindness, and it is a fruit of godliness. You can't be brotherly kind and love your brothers as Christ loved the church and bear one another's burdens and praying for one another and forgiving for another if you're not godly. Again, all of these are supplemental and have to be in the same order of things, right? And then lastly, we got the foundation is faith. The culmination is love. And this is not brotherly kindness. This is agape love. This is unconditional love to men. And this does not say, I'm going to love my Christian brothers. This says, I love all men. And I love them unconditionally. I love them despite the fact that they do this, that, and that, which I used to do. Uh, Agape love says, you can be changed too by Christ, and you can too be brought into the fellowship of Christ. It's the greatest Christian virtue. We know that. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Love is patient and kind. Love suffers long. Love doesn't record wrongs, doesn't behave rudely. It shows preference to others, right? Uh, and so that's love bears, believes uh, all things. So that's what the final culmination of Christian conduct in us has to be love. Love is the fulfillment of everything. Great commandments are summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the final fruit, the culminating fruit, this is what we all strive to, is to love. doesn't gloss over sin and say, I'm okay, you're okay, but it lovingly goes to a brother and says, brother, you're doing this and that. I'm concerned about you. Uh, it doesn't, but it loves the the, it's it's it it seeks the welfare, and I love this. It, it, the origin is not in the desirability of the object. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, so that He demonstrates His love, and that He loved us, dead, lost, hateful sinners. So that's what love is, and that's what He ultimately is going to work in us. And when we're in all glory together, we're going to agape love each other. And hopefully we come to that in this world, too. But the ultimate culmination of our Christian conduct and our character is love. That's what he's working in us through all these steps. And they are incremental steps. And uh, where are you in this process? Are you still right here? You got a long way to go. All of us are in different steps in this process. All of us have weaknesses and things that we must, God must work through in us. But ultimately, this is where we need to be. And uh, I ain't there yet. Uh, next week, we're going to take make calling our election sure, and we're going to look at how we do that. It's because of where we are progressing. It's because of the word. And we're going to talk about how it's been given by the Holy Spirit. And then uh, and then we will start false teaching and false doctrine and heresies from those days. And we'll look at them in two days. And we'll look at Oprah and New Age movement and all that stuff. It's part of Gnosticism, uh, false teaching. 
uh, positive doctrine, name it, claim it, word of faith, all that good stuff that's part of Gnosticism, nothing new under the sun, okay? Thank you guys for joining us via Zoom, and uh, we will see some of you in church at 11. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that you give us faith and that you desire for us to supply virtue and you desire us to be diligent and you desire us to be knowledgeable and you desire us to be self-controlled and you desire us to be till we get to the process that we love one another unconditionally. Lord, thank you for the hope. Thank you that you've given us the divine power, that you've enabled us, that you're the initiator of it. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be diligent people, not apathetic or indifferent, not tired, not frustrated, not discouraged, not disillusioned, but hopeful marching to Zion as Christian soldiers finishing the fight and fighting in faith. Help us to do these things, and we will not be short-sighted or blind, and we will not stumble if we do these things in Christ's name. Amen.